Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Carolyn Hogg. She's a senior research manager for the Australasian Wildlife Genomics Group. Um, we're going to talk about uh, her work with koalas and other wildlife. So, Carolyn, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah, I know. I've been interested in and loved koalas all my life. They just seem like really cute and lovable. And from what you say, I guess they're not. But uh, tell me, what, what got you interested in, in wildlife? And then, uh, I guess, you like koalas in particular? Or do you kind of have yeah. to work with them? Yeah, so I, uh, I actually grew up in South Africa. And we immigrated to Australia all my teenage years. So... I spent my childhood going to the Kruger National Park and watching wildlife, like elephants and giraffes and uh, all, the, all the big African animals. And when I moved to Australia, Australia has lots of brown furry things uh, that are uh, mostly nocturnal. And so I actually started my early career in conservation biology, working with marine mammals, with whales in particular. So I've worked with whales all over the world and, and seals as well. And, uh, and now I find myself um, working with some of our most critically endangered species in Australia, uh, from birds to fish to marsupials and, of course, the koalas. What's making the uh, various animals you work with endangered? Is it habitat destruction? Is it uh, like What are some of the top things that are doing it? Yeah, so there's a multitude of threats here in Australia as across, across most of the world, and, and habitat destruction and habitat loss and fragmentation is one of the key ones, coupled with climate change. Of course, you know, many people would have seen the footage from the 2019-2020 summer we had with the Australian megafires where we had, you know, 23 million acres of bushland burnt here in Australia. So that was, that was pretty significant. So those are some of our major threats. But our, our key threat in Australia, which is different to the rest of the world, is we have a serious problem with invasive pest species, particularly uh, foxes and feral cats. And because Australia actually separated from the rest of the continents millions of years ago, we don't have any large predators like Africa or North America. or We don't have cougars or pumas, jaguars, you know, lions, tigers. We don't have any of those big predators. So all of our wildlife here is really quite small. And unfortunately, they in what we call the critical weight range, uh, which is between about 500 grams and one and a half kilograms. And what happens is the um, the cats just eat them. So we've had about, we've got the fastest extinction, mammal extinction rate of any country in the world. We've lost 29 mammal species since the arrival of Europeans in Australia over 200 years ago when they introduced the cats. And unfortunately, in 2016, we also, in fact, had our first climate change extinction as well, which was a little marsupial mouse that lived on one of our um, offshore islands that has now been swamped by rising sea levels. So climate change is exacerbating all our existing threats here in Australia because Australia is a, a continent of drought and flooding rains and extreme weather events. We're really starting to feel the extreme changes that are occurring in the global. So historically, was the climate in Australia always like this, very variable, or is it only in recent years? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's always been quite variable in the fact that, you know, Australia is a very large continent with a very small human population, but the large proportion of our country is desert. And so what's happening now is it's just becoming drier and drier than it has been previously. And through geological time, Australia has been a very wet continent and a dry continent, a wet continent. And the wildlife have um, contracted to what areas of what we call climate refugia. So like where the the climate is good and the habitat is great, the, the wildlife actually contract to those regions. And then as geological climate changes, they kind of expand out of those regions. The problem that we've got now is because of human habitation, a lot of that habitat's been destroyed. And also because climate change is accelerating quite quickly with the human-induced climate change, the impacts of on our wildlife are well, if Australia is sparsely populated, then why would it be uh, as much of a problem as other areas that are less or more populated? Um, because the animals that currently live in our forests are not going to have forests to live in as those forests start to dry out. So the because people people tend to live on the coast where the forests are in Australia, um, and so that's where the habitat loss is occurring. Um, and as the climate is drying out those forests in areas where animals are living, it's just going to become space is going to become a premium a premium problem. So is it? So it's, it, it may not directly be population, but you're saying the habitats that animals are in appear to be shrinking. So I guess that's uh, that's that's consuming their habitats faster than people migrating there. Um, I think it's not just one or the other. I think you know that the thing with conservation biology is there's lots of little nuances, and it's it's almost like a death by a thousand paper pipe scenario where you'll have you know habitat loss plus climate change plus threats from foxes and and feral cats plus the fact that we fragmented the landscape with major highways and the animals are trying to cross the road so they then get run over by a car Uh, there's all these different variables which come into play and so um, it's not just one thing we need to fix it's multiple threats all occurring at once and they they have a multiplying effect on one another as well so that that's really why we have such a critical threatened species problem in australia so tell me about some of the animals you work with and what are some of the interesting things about them. So obviously uh, we work with the koala. So the koala is uh, a really kind of special and unique animal. They live, they what we call specialist foliovores. So they only tend to eat certain types of leaves on certain types of eucalypt trees. And everybody loves a koala and it's we think it's mainly because they've got a very human looking face when you look at their face. And they've also got exceedingly soft fur. And so that's where they first became threatened in Australia was during the fur trade of the hundreds. And so, um, yeah, they were hunted actually initially um, when Europeans first arrived to the Australian continent. So they're, they're a pretty unique species. Uh, one of the other species we, work, we do a lot of work with, of course, is the Tasmanian devil. That a lot of people in North America know because of um, the Looney Tunes cartoon. Um, however, uh, <laughs> devils are, don't look anything like the Looney Tunes character, but they do make the sound that he makes. I will, will say that they make this screeching, grunting sound. But Tasmanian oh, in the devils cartoon, are, it sounded like they went blah, 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 like talking. But what do they, yeah, can you imitate how much, they actually sound? Yeah, that's how they sound when they're feeding. They kind of make these grunting, snuffling noises. Um, (laughs) Very cute. I love devils. Devils are one of my favourite species. And, yeah, so Tasmanian devils only live on the island state of Tasmania, which is to the south of the main Australian continent. 
and uh, they unfortunately are endangered because of a clonal cancer. So it's a cancer that actually is infectious, which is quite unusual for a cancer, and it's called devil facial tumour disease, and, and that cancer is actually killing the devil population, and it's the population's dropped by about 80% across the entire state of Tasmania. So we've been working on that program for about the last 10 years. And then some of the other species we work with are, are little birds that only weigh about 40 grams. They're called the orange-bellied parrot. They live in Tasmania and fly to the Australian mainland every winter. There's only about 60 of them in the wild. Um, we've got quite a large captive population. And then um, other species like the bilby. I, I don't know if you know what a bilby is. It kind of looks no. like a rabbit, but it's a marsupial. It's got big ears and a body and a uh, long tail with a little fluffy end bit. So your listeners should Google with Bilby, B-I-L-B-Y, and have a look at it. It's a pretty cute Australian marsupial. <laughs> so we work on, on quite a range of different. And Bilbies used to be found all across Australia, and, and now they only exist in, in one region uh, up in northwestern Australia and, and northern Queensland, and, and that's mainly because they've been impacted by cats. So those are some of the species we work with. And, and what we do is we actually use genetics. Um, to help conservation managers make more informed decisions about managing these species. What does that mean, uh, genetics? What do you mean? So genetics, so everyone knows hopefully about DNA and genomes after the COVID crisis. I think everyone should understand what genome sequencing is now. They hear about a lot of it in the media. So the DNA is, is really the building blocks of life and what makes up your cells and your body. And if you imagine if we untangle DNA and, and stretch it out across a table, uh, it looks like a ladder. It's got two long bits and little rungs in between. And um, and the DNA that fits into the cell, say, of humans and also marsupials consists of 3.2 billion rungs in the ladder. So it's a huge amount of chemical information that, that's encoded in your cells that really give you your hair colour and your eye colour and how to make... Right, but what, what good is the sequencing doing? How does that help you in terms of conservation? Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So what we know is that the more diversity, so the more differences you have in your DNA, the better chance you have for adapting to future changes. So this is how evolution works is that they have these little mutations and variations in the DNA and that's what allows to slowly adapt to different um, different types of environments and so what we know with wildlife and plant species or any threatened species is that when you have a very very small population size the amount of genetic variation or differences you have in your DNA is severely reduced and if it gets severely reduced then you start looking too similar to all the other individuals in your population. And then eventually you'll start to have problems with uh, what we call inbreeding depression. And what that means is you'll stop breeding properly. You won't have as many offspring. 
offspring won't survive. And so you start this very slow downward spiral towards extinction. And so what we're coming to realise is that to be able to help animals in this fragmented landscape that we've now created, we need to help assist moving them around so they they end up maintaining this diversity and this state variance because that's really important to long-term. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Do, you, do you look at the epigenetic changes of these animals or their microbiomes? Or are you just looking um, at the sequences only? Yeah, no. So we don't we don't do epigenetics within our research group, but we definitely do their microbiome. So one of the things that we do is we work a lot of, with the zoo communities here in Australia, and and also the organisations like the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, which have these very very large fenced enclosures, talking you know eight thousand hectare enclosures where they reintroduce species that have been killed off by uh, feral species. So they build these fence enclosures um, and then remove all the invasive pest species and reintroduce the native wildlife. So we work closely with those organisations to help them make smarter decisions about which individuals they should be moving between populations. And, And one of the aspects we also look at is the microbiome, because we know from human research that the microbiome plays a really important role in just overall health. And so what we want to do is understand whether or not having animals in captivity does in fact change their microbiome. Um, And is that a problem when we release them? So last year we published a research study with Tasmanian devils where we knew that Tasmanian devils in captivity have a very different microbiome to devils in the wild. And uh, when we released them back to the wild and looked at their microbiome, within three months, they actually, the microbiome of the captive devils started like the wild devil. So that's a really positive because it means that the microbiome for that species is quite plastic. So it's quite malleable. And so the animals will literally just look like the look like the locals once they've been out there in the wild for a bit. So that's one less thing we have to worry about. Yeah, yeah I interviewed a guy named Jonathan Clayton. He's called the monkey doctor. And he's looking at the microbiome of a monkey is again in captivity in the wild. And he said, uh, you know, similar stuff when they come into captivity, they tend to actually resemble the the human caretakers, their microbiome, and it's very different from in the wild. But uh, so far as I know, he hasn't reintroduced monkeys to the wild to see if they go back. But you have that yeah. key to the puzzle, at least with your animals. Yeah, that definitely is the case. And and uh, we also did the virome of devils. So the microbiome, of course, is all the bacteria that live inside the animals. Um, but we also looked at the viromes, so all the different viruses that can be found in devils. And, and we actually described, I think it was something like, 18 or 20 new viruses that we'd never known about that are only found in Tasmanian devils. Yeah, it definitely makes me wash my hands really diligently after I've been handling the devils in the field. (laughs) Once you start to understand not only about the species itself, but also the different types of bacteria and viruses they carry. So why why do they call Tasmanian devils devils? What's, What's interesting about them to you? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, well, they're called devils, actually, because when uh, Australia was uh, first a colony, they had uh, people went down to Tasmania and they were living in Tasmania. And and at night, in the dark, they'd hear this like screeching sound and it sounded like the devil. And actually, it was a Tasmanian devil, the marsupial, uh, living under their house screeching. And so what devils do is devils, of course, are a marsupial. So they have pouch young. And so what happens is they only have four teats in their pouch so they can only have four young time 
and they, the young are underdeveloped, they crawl into the pouch and they grow up like all other mice do. But there comes a time when they're too big to live in their mum's pouch. So the mum actually leaves them in a den and she goes out to feed at night and then she comes back to the den and she regurgitates her food, her meat, and then that's how she feeds the joeys or the baby devils. And so when that happens, when she comes back to the den, the, the joeys start screeching and calling for their mum. And so female devils were building dens underneath the settlers' houses, and so that's how they got the name devil. Do you work with uh, platypuses or any other, uh, you know, you said a, a bilby you talked about, but I'm just curious, it flashed into my head, do you work with platypus? Um, yeah, we've done some work with platypus, platypus genetics. We mainly work with platypuses in relation to their venom. So a lot of people don't realise that um, platypuses are venomous. <laughs> yeah. How, how? How are they venomous? <laughs> Male platypuses uh, actually have a spur on their hind foot. So it's like a long spur that comes out uh, that injects venom into people and it's predominant during the breeding season. Yeah, so you don't ever want to be spurred by a platypus because it's excruciatingly painful. But so yeah, I can't, yeah. Hug, I can't hug a platypus or hold one, huh? Well, you can. You, you can play with the platypus. Just don't play with a male platypus during breeding, is my suggestion. But um, platypuses are, are, again, also they've got amazing fur. They've got these really, really soft fur. So, unfortunately, they also were hunted um, during the early uh, 1800s in Australia for their fur. But, yeah, I mean, to be honest, if you've ever seen a platypus in real life, you would not have imagined that was ever actually a living. It's got a duck uh, bill like a duck and, and it's got this long-shaped marsupial body, but its tail is very long and a little bit flattened, kind of like a beaver's tail, but it's covered in fur and they've got these web-like feet and they're a monotreme. So what a monotreme is is it means they're a mammal, but they actually lay eggs. So uh, there's only two monotremes in the world, being the echidna, which is also in Australia, uh, which is a spiny little animal, kind of looks like a hedgehog, but given a hedgehog, and, uh, and platypuses. And so that's the thing that, that makes Australia so unique for a variety of different reasons. We, we have all these species here that are not found anywhere else in the world. So, you know, like 46% of our birds are endemic, so they're only ever found in Australia. 94% of the mammal species found in Australia are found nowhere else in the world. So this is oh, well. why it becomes so important that, that Australia really fights to ensure we maintain uh, these species because it's part of the global biodiversity. What about Papua New Guinea? Are there similar animals to Australia or even that's totally unique? Uh, no, Papua New Guinea, because it, it uh, was connected to Australia for quite a period of time, has some very similar species to us. So they also have a kidna in, in Papua New Guinea. And they also have a very ancient bird up there uh, called a cassowary. And we have that same species in Australia. And, yeah, so it almost looks like a dinosaur. It's kind of got these dinosaur-looking legs. And it's a ratite, so it's related to the kiwi and the orange families. Uh, so it's a flightless bird, but they, again, are pretty unique. So that's that's the thing. If your listeners ever do come down to Australia, you uh, find yourselves in a, a land of, of weird and wonderful things that is live only in most people's imagination. Um, yeah, tell me more about koalas. You, you said offline that that's the, the animal that people always love and are interested in, I guess, because of its cuteness. But, uh, you know, what, what are some interesting facts about about koalas. Um, well, as I said, they're a specialist polyivore, so they really like, uh, they just eat these certain types of leaves on the certain types of trees. And because the leaves that they eat are, in fact, eucalypt leaves, so eucalypt leaves are filled with eucalyptus oil, which is highly toxic 
to pretty much any other animal. And because of the toxicity in the eucalypt leaves, um, they have all these very specialist enzymes in their liver, uh, which allow them to digest the toxins and not be affected by the toxins that they eat. And so we, when we looked at the koala genome, which was published a couple of years ago in 2018, we see these what we call gene expansions. So, you know, humans only have a couple of these genes in their liver because we don't really eat toxic food. But koalas have hundreds of these genes in their liver to allow them to be able to process leaves. And so that's a really cool and exciting thing about working in genetics and looking at genomes is, is, you know, the genomes can really provide us with insight into why certain species, whether they be plants or animals, have different adaptations to the the world that they live. Um, And all that kind of information helps us understand and then we can make smarter management decisions. The other thing that happens with koalas is because um, they eat these toxic leaves, they, uh, when they give birth to their joeys, they actually feed their joeys something called pap, which is a, a little bit of poo that comes out of the mum and she feeds it to her baby in order to make sure that they get the right bacteria uh, and microbiome to be able to digest the leaves themselves as they grow up. Oh, wow. Kind of creepy, yeah. Oh. So koala, koalas spend probably about yeah, 19, 20 hours a day sleep in a tree digesting their food. And everyone always just imagines that they don't move a lot. But but koalas do actually move quite a lot at night. They come down out of the trees and they walk between the trees. And they have feed trees and they have different trees that they sleep in. And um, Yeah, so... We've been doing a lot of work here in Australia because they really, they're very difficult to find um, out in the forest. It's pretty hard to see a koala sometimes from the ground. And so there's a team at the University of Newcastle and in the New South Wales government who've been working with using drone technology to um, use the drones to find koalas in the tree. So they have to do it, of course, in the winter months, early in the morning. So when the land is very cold, so the background resolution is cold and they fly the drones above the forest canopy, they can see all these blobs of heat in the trees. And, and that's what they're starting to have um, surveying. For, so that's pretty are koalas friendly? I mean, can you, can you know, do keepers interact with them and hold them or are they just kind of like curmudgeons? I think they're just like curmudgeons personally. But yeah, so in New South Wales, you know, allowed to hold koalas except for the keepers. They do, um, they don't like being near the ground. They get a little bit kind of, I guess, not really scared, but they just kind of get a bit antsy if they are close to the ground. So sometimes what happens is if you've got a koala and you grab it out of a tree and you hold it, if you're a person, they really grip on really tightly with claws into your shoulder because they worry. Yeah, so that's not very comfortable because they're, I mean, you can imagine they're climbing these um, eucalypt trees and eucalypts don't have really, some eucalypt species don't have really rough bark like in more of the chestnut trees or the maple. So the bark is actually really quite smooth in a lot of eucalypt trees. And, and as a result, koalas have these exceedingly sharp and they have a smell like they, they have. Uh, if you ever use tea tree oil or eucalyptus oil for it's an antiseptic. So some people use eucalyptus oil as an antiseptic or, you know, there's body lotion tree oil and eucalyptus oil. And, um, it's a, it's quite a unique smell. And that's what koalas smell like, smell like. And it's amazing. So I can be in a, in a zoo somewhere and even before I walk around the corner and see a koala and exhibit. I can that's not a bad smell, I guess. Eucalyptus is pretty nice, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's that's uh, that's koalas. They and and then in some places like in Queensland, members of the public go. But yeah, yeah, so, so cool. The world, the, yeah, the world is is. I guess the the one thing you know 
like the rest of the world knows what a koala is and everyone's so fascinated by them. But to me, there's so many bass in Australia that um, koalas are just one of many eclectic and unique species that we have down here. So, yeah, you know, we, we all like koalas, but there's a lot of others that I prefer. Well, just like you said, with Tasmanian devils, there's a apparently contagious cancer that affects their face. I've heard with koalas, there's recently like a, a virus that endogenized in their DNA and it's kind of changing the course of the, uh, the entire koala population. Yeah, so that's the koala retrovirus. One of the reasons we did the koala genome is to understand more about the koala retrovirus or core. It's kind of equivalent, I guess, to um, HIV in humans. Is probably the most closely related analogy I can give your listeners for that one. Um, but not only do they they suffer from corv, we also uh, koalas have chlamydia, so they get either chlamydia down in the reproductive regions or they get ocular chlamydia in their eyes and it makes them go blind. So uh, the reproductive form makes them sterile and the ocular blind. So disease is not another really significant and that's one of the key areas that we work on in our research group is that we specialise very much in something we call immunogenetics, which is understanding the interplay between genetics and disease in different species. And so that's why we work with any devils, obviously, because of devil facial cancer. But we also are working pretty closely with koalas and the, and the team that are developing the koala vaccine for GAR to try and understand why some individuals respond better to the vaccine than others. And it's really encoded in their DNA and what type of immune system they have. And so by studying the different genetic variants we find in the immune gene species, we can better understand how those seeds are able to amount immune responsive disease. So that's what is this uh, is this retrovirus killing the koalas or is just making healthy koalas that are different and and make the old version of the koalas sick? We're not quite sure what it's doing. We know it's there. We know it has some role to play in koala disease, but what it means for the species long term, we are still unclear on. So they're still doing a lot of work on that. Well, they have ones in captivity. I mean, do the the keepers know, oh, okay, this is one where the retrovirus is in them, this is one that's not? Well, we do have individuals where, you know, we've got some populations that have the retrovirus and there's nothing wrong with them. And then we have other populations that have the retrovirus that have all sorts of disease susceptibility issues. So it's it's not as black and white as, oh, well, you have the virus, so therefore you're a sick koala. It's um, because we don't actually know, we don't understand fully what the, vi- the retrovirus is doing. We know it's changing the DNA, but we don't know what the consequence of that is. Like We, we haven't worked that out. So why, why try to vaccinate against it if you don't know if it's even harmful to oh, no, some of vac- them? We're not vaccinating for the virus. We're vaccinating for chlamydia. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the the CORV research is still really quite new and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in relation to that that disease. But chlamydia is the other significant disease that's in koalas and that's something that um, we, we're working towards seeing and figure out ways of managing those. Well, what other animals do you work with that, like, what's the most interesting ones to you? Like, do you work with kangaroos or, you know, do you love echidnas? Like, what's your favourite? Why? My, my favourite definitely is devils, followed by a little animal called a woily, which is like a, a, a woily, a W-O-Y-L-I-E. It's called a brush-tailed betong. Um, so a betongs are, like, 
tiny mini little kangaroos need an analogy for them like it's a betong it's hard to describe what some of these species are to people who don't live here but yeah they they bounce really and they're really cute they've got these little cute faces and and uh they live over in western australia where uh, my family immigrated to when we left south africa and unfortunately that population crashed by about 95 percent in the 2000s um, from something we think may have been the disease or we're not quite sure so that part of the work that we're doing with that species at the moment is to better understand what caused that population to crash. So for me, it's not so much about the individual species that I work on. The challenge for me really is how do, how do we use the latest technology, whether it be drones or sequencing technology or acoustic surveying methods, how do we use this massive plethora of technology that we're developing in this fourth industrial revolution and how do we apply it to make better and smarter conservation management for the species that are left on the planet so there's a a massive biodiversity crisis globally you know you just have to turn on the news on any other day when there's not a global pandemic to see that we're losing habitat and species of the world one of the things that you, you need to realize with the planet is that of all species whether they're plants or animals that live on the planet about 80 60 to 80 percent of them occur in 17 countries so it's not that diversity spread evenly across the planet there's pockets of country which have massive so united states is is one such country they're known as a mega diverse nation um, australia is one of the other 17 mega and so you know we have massive challenges in how to live within the natural world and with an ever-growing human population how do we how do we find the balance and how do we we live more sustainably to ensure that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren have the opportunity to see platypus swimming the stream, echidna foraging in the forest and, and koalas and trees. So for me, it's not about the individual species. It's it's more about, you know, how do, how do we solve these massive conservation? Yeah. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So if you hop on Google and, and uh, look at the Australasian Wildlife Genomics Group, um, we'll come up. Uh, we're at the based at the University of Sydney, um, and we've also just started a new project which we're calling the Threatened Species Initiative. So that's threateneditiesinitiative.com, and that's the project that we're trying to work out ways to develop genome resources really rapidly for um, some about fifty of Australia's most threatened plant and animal species. Where you can find us. Well, very good. Well, Carolyn, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, and uh, I wish I could hug or hang out with all the animals you do, but hopefully someday. Oh, excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me, Rich, and, and hopefully um, giving some insight to your listeners about the kind of the cool and kooky animals we have down here in Australia. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.